and he has written in our programme. I am delighted to send you my warmest good wishes as you come together for the sixth Ox Peace Day Conference. The work you do to support the development of peace studies with the Academy and to resource practitioners is a vital contribution to the reconciliation of humanity to itself. My prayers are with you that you may be guided into all wisdom and that our world may be guided into peace. And I'm now going to hand over to John Gledhill, who will introduce the first of the speakers who are going to guide us into all wisdom and all peace. Uh, thanks, Liz. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you very much for coming along early on a Saturday morning. Thanks to our panelists. <clears throat> I'm delighted to open the, the conference with this panel. And as you know, the theme of this conference juxtaposes two prominent schools of thinking uh, in contemporary studies of conflict and peace. You know, one is this idea that maybe there's been a shift in the nature of warfare and conflict since the end of the Cold War. With the onset of globalization, there's been a shift in the financing, organization, and motivations of conflict. Uh, we heard this from Mary Calder last night. Maybe we're living in an era of so-called new wars. Just opposed with that idea is the more recent work that's come out of <clears throat> um, um, Stephen Pinker's book on, on Better Angels, which is the idea that maybe war and violence aren't so much changing with time as coming to an end and, and gradually reducing over time. And that as a species, human beings are gradually sort of institutionalizing themselves uh, themselves out of violence, war, and conflict. Now, given the you know, contemporary time in which these, these ideas have been discussed, they may seem novel. But that impression may simply reflect our sort of cognitive bias towards the present. We tend to think that we're living in a unique moment. All eras tend to think they're living in a unique moment in time. <clears throat> we have a collective tendency to sort of discount historical precedent. If we had to turn ourselves back some 95 years, almost a century, to the end of the First World War, I think we'd find that there were some very similar ideas being discussed at the time. Given the unprecedented scale, duration, and casualties of World War I, there was an idea that maybe there'd been a fundamental shift in the nature of warfare. Um, the duration of the war was unprecedented. The casualties were unprecedented. So maybe it was a kind of new war, if you like. At the same time, horror over the extreme level of casualties and violence seen led to a kind of emerging collective consensus that this should be maybe the war to end all wars. So there'd be no wars. So very similar sets of ideas were being discussed some 95 years ago, uh, similar juxtaposition. And given um, conceptual parallels with current debates and evidently the uh, impending centennial anniversary of the onset of World War I, uh, we thought you know, the best way to start this conference would be to invite some of the world's le uh, leading World War I historians um, <clears throat> to discuss, and this is the title of the panel, what World War I can tell us about the future of war and the possibility for peace. Um, and when I suggest we do have some of the world's leading World War I historians, that's absolutely the case. Um, let me give you a very brief, uh, truncated biographies of our speakers because we'd be here uh, for the entire duration of the panel discussing their biographies if I did them justice. Um, the first speaker is Margaret, Margaret Macmillan in the centre. Uh, she's currently Warden of St Anthony's College, uh, Professor of International History here at Oxford. Uh, she was previously Provost of Trinity College uh, and Professor of History at the University of Toronto. Um, many books and publications, which are, some of which are detailed in the program. Uh, her most recent book, however, is uh, The War That Ended Peace, How Europe Abandoned Peace for the First World War. 
The second speaker will be uh, Heather Jones on my immediate left, uh, who is Associate Professor of International History at the London School of Economics. Uh, she was previously a Max Weber Fellow at the University, at European University Institute, um, and her most recent book is Violence Against Prisoners of War in the First World War, Britain, France and Germany, 1914 to 1920. Uh, and the final speaker will be Hugh Strawn, uh, who's currently a fellow of All, Soul All Souls College and professor of history of war here at Oxford. Uh, between 2003 and 2012, he was director of Oxford's program on the changing character of war. Um, again, too many books to list, but uh, one of his most recent books, if not the most recent, uh, last year's uh, text, The Direction of War, Contemporary Strategy in Historical Perspective. Um, in terms of the way we're going to run the panel, about 15 minutes each from, uh, from the speakers to introduce a few ideas. I'll then invite them to have a chat amongst one another for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll throw it open to the floor for the final 30 minutes. Uh, Margaret. Whatever you're more comfortable with. Sorry, I automatically no? stand up. But whatever I you're more comfortable with. I can I'm, sit down. Really? Okay, whatever you're okay more I'll stand up. Don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I have to stand up. But anyway, thank you very much for, for inviting me. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm going to talk about the ways in which war and peace were being thought about in the 19th century. But I'd like to start by saying that in my view, we have to examine war in the context of the societies which fight it that too often we see war as something that is an aberration that doesn't bear any relation to the societies which find themselves dragged into conflict. And I think to understand wars, to understand why wars happen, to understand the impact of wars, we need to understand the ways in which societies are organized before, during, and after wars. We need to understand the thinking of people as conflict approaches and, and breaks out, that we cannot, in other words, separate war very neatly from peace and we cannot separate war very neatly from, from its society. Societies of particular sorts fight wars in particular ways. If you have, in the past, when you had very hierarchical societies dominated by a warrior curse, the fighting tended to be done by those people who dominated society and those who produced the surplus which allowed them to be a warrior curse were not usually brought into war because it was too expensive and wasteful to kill the lives of people who were on the farms working. As societies changed, and particularly we can see this I think in the 19th century, you get a greater involvement of more and more people in war and a greater interest on the part of the public on, in, in public policy. I think you can see stages in this, but in the French Revolution we get the introduction of the idea that people are now citizens rather than subjects, and if you're a citizen, you have obligations, and part of that obligation is to defend the society of which you're part. And so during the French Revolution, when France, revolutionary France, was menaced by its neighbors, the beleaguered revolutionary government declared a levee en masse, calling on all French citizens to come to the defense of the revolution, the men to fight, the women to prepare the bandages, the old men to be carried into the squares and inspire people with stories of, of heroism. And I think you see in the course of the 19th century as societies become more complicated, as more and more people become participating members in the politics and, and civic life of their societies, you see a changing nature in the relationship between the peoples of Europe and, and elsewhere and the sorts of wars that they fight. Um, the public becomes increasingly involved not just in issues of war, but in, in public policy issues. You see increasingly 
in Europe in the 19th century with the spread of communications, with greater literacy, with increased urbanization. I mean, this is a time of tremendous transformation of European society. And you see a growing awareness on the part of the public, a growing um, desire for knowledge, which increasingly is being fed by new mass media, um, in particular, of course, before the First World War, the newspapers. You get the appearance, by the end of the 19th century, of tabloid newspapers with mass circulations. In Moscow, in 1914, where we, t we tend, I think, wrongly to think of Russia as somehow very different from the rest of Europe and, and much more backward. But in Moscow, in 1914, the biggest daily newspaper had a, had a daily a circulation of 800,000, which will give you a sense of the ways in which people increasingly are being made aware of, of a larger community outside their immediate one. And this can play out, of course, and did play out in the 19th century in two ways. Um, governments had to become much more conscious of the will of the public. Um, lobby groups became increasingly important. And lobby groups could, as, as is to be expected in any society, reflect different strains or different schools of thought within that society. And so on the one hand in Europe, you had a very large constituency for peace. And I think one of the things we tend to forget because the First World War did break out was that there were very, very strong forces pushing towards peace rather than towards war. And I think one of the great dangers with the First World War is we tend to think it was inevitable um, we look back and we think you know, it must have been bound to happen, something that big, something on that scale uh, must have been going to happen. And so we tend to search history before 1914 looking for the causes of the First World War. And I think it's also very important to remember that there was a very large constituency for peace, a very large middle class constituency. I mean, the feeling among a lot of people that Europe had progressed so far and had advanced so much. I mean, people looked around, they could see in their own lifetimes evidence of extraordinary material and, and social progress and political progress. And so an assumption that war was something Europeans no longer did. I mean, if there had been a Steve Pinker writing at the time, um, he would have really, his ideas would have resonated with an awful lot of people. That war was something that Europeans no longer did. War was something that people in other parts of the world might do, but that's because they were less civilized. I and mean, there was a real assumption that Europe's very progress had made war now increasingly improbable. And you got tremendous international support, often very organized, for such things as arbitration as a way of settling disputes among nations or between nations. And there was something like 300 arbitrations held between 1794 and 1914. More than half of those were held after 1890. Um, so you get a sense that there really is a trend here with, with a good deal of public support. And increasingly, you get international organizations of liberal politicians, international organizations of lawyers, international church organizations, international peace organizations, which are pushing for alternatives to war, pushing for things like arbitration, pu pushing for things like disarmament. I don't know if any of you have discovered it's, it's a wonderful time waster. Google has something called Ngram, which is a way of searching the whole Google um, database of books for the occurrence of words over a period of time, and it graphs um, the use of words. And what is really striking, and I, I tried it with deterrence before the First World War and disarmament, and it goes along fairly flat until about 1890, and then in most languages, you can do a number of languages, French, English, or German, it goes up very sharply, which gives an indication, I think, that these things are becoming part of the public discussion. As I say, it's a wonderful time waster if you don't want to do anything else because you can do searches for all sorts of interesting things. And so I think you, you get, I think, a, a sense and, and indeed organized support, which governments now have to take account of. And of course, there's also a huge working class international, the second international, which repeatedly at its international congresses talks about how it will act should a general war come to prevent that war. 
And it's undoubted, undoubtedly true that the Second International had within its, within its power the ability to impede war if the soldiers in the reserves, many of whom were in the working class, had refused to come back when called, it would have been very difficult to create the mass armies with which Europe went to war. The French government was, in, all governments were worried about this, the French government, for example, calculated that something like 20% of the soldiers wouldn't come when called from the reserves. When the war actually came, less than 0.5% didn't show up. Um, but I think there was a sense that, that there was um, a potential for peace, forces for peace, but on the other hand, and this is why I think it's very important to understand that world before 1914 or to understand any world when you're trying to understand the place of war in a world, there were forces pushing towards war or at least forces that made it seem acceptable that there should be a war. Uh, nationalism which, and this was an age of, of heightened and intense nationalism. Nationalism, which is not about just bringing people together who share certain common characteristics, whether it's ethnicity, religion, language, or combination of any of those. It's also about positing an other, an alien, someone who isn't you. I mean, I think all nationalisms have at their heart not just a bringing together of a particular defined group, but defining that group against another nation. And so increasingly you begin to get people talking about how the French nation has always been at odds with the German nation, for example. And you get talk which is borrowed from Darwinism of nations having hereditary enemies, that it's inevitable that nations will fight each other because that, that's just the way nature is. I mean, it's a misapplication of the uh, theories of Darwin to human societies, but it was very, very powerful. You, you see in the language of the time, in the writing of the time, in the commonly accepted assumptions of the time, that there is really um, a Darwinian analysis possible of society and that conflict is, is probably inevitable, that it's simply going to happen. And so you do get, in the Europe before 1914, conflicting pressures, pressures towards peace, pressures where Europeans think war is something they no longer do, but you also get um, pressures which push in the oppos opposite direction and, and which help to make, at least in certain cir circles, um, the assumption that war is something that you can use, it can be a tool, it is something that is probably an inevitable part of human society. And so, uh, in my view, Europe is very much a continent at play before 1914, as indeed is true probably in any age. I mean, I think we make a great mistake if we look back at an age and say it was going in this direction or it was going in that direction. It's never clear, I think, or often not clear, which way a society is going until it reaches a crisis point. How that affected war, I think, is that you did get... Um, concern on the part of a lot of European elites that war was something that their peoples would no longer do and support. The very real fear, as the French military demonstrated, but you had the same thing in Germany, often the same thing in Britain, that somehow the public would uh, let the country down, would not be prepared to sacrifice. You, you get a lot of talk about degeneration. In fact, there's a very popular book written by a German, uh, sorry, Hungarian doctor called Degeneration, which goes into a number of additions, which argues that somehow the very success of modern society, the very comforts of modern society, um, the abundance of food, um, the fact that people are living longer and surviving longer from illnesses which might have carried them off earlier, is somehow um, making the race deteriorate. And you get a lot of concern that somehow people aren't as fit as they were, they're not as ready to fight, they're more selfish, they're not as ready to sacrifice for the nation. And I think it's no coincidence that this is the period just before the First World War when you get the first really widespread interest in eugenics. And the first international eugenics conference is held in the Royal Albert Hall in London. And its patrons include Winston Churchill, the president of Harvard University, and Alexander Graham Bell. So this is not something that is just a fringe idea. 
And I think you also get a sense among those who are thinking about war, what, what, what war might like, what war might look like, is that they had probably better fight an offensive war. And I think that there are really two reasons for this. One is that I think the military tend, but Hugh Strawn and Heather Jones can say much more about this, but the military tend to be trained to think about problems. They see a problem, um, they see a need, um, that country has to uh, defend itself or it has to deal with an enemy, and they tended, I think not surprisingly, think in terms of trying to get a decisive battle, trying to settle the issue, and trying to solve a particular problem. But the second thing I think that, that helps to push them towards thinking in this, um, planning in this, in, in this offensive way, is in fact this fear that their publics may not support a long war, and that what they had better do is fight quickly. That may help to bring the publics together at least for a little bit, and if they win decisive victories, then they can all go home, and then they won't have to worry about the strains that a longer war will impose on society. And of course, we all know that in making the plans, and, and virtually all the plans of the major powers by 1914 were plans that assumed that there would be an offensive campaign, that there would be a decisive victory, that they'd all then sit down and, and talk about peace and make a settlement. Um, they, they, were, they were doing this in spite of the mounting evidence that there was in the 19th century that the very nature of war was changing. The huge technological changes of the 19th century meant that armies were now equipped with much greater firepower, much more deadly firepower, firepower capable of making an effect at much greater distances, and it was becoming increasingly costly to attack well-defended positions. And there was evidence of this from the American Civil War, which a lot of European armies studied very seriously, but the temptation was, as we often do, and we're doing it now with climate change, was to explain away the evidence. And so you had European generals saying things like, there's no point studying the American Civil War because they're all a bunch of barbarians over there. I mean, what can they teach us about war? And you had evidence from the Russo-Turkish War of 1877. You had evidence from the Afrikaner War, the African War of, um, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, again, there was a temptation to explain this away. Um, the British took uh, considerable losses at the beginning of the African War, or the Boer War, as people used to call it then, um, but they tended to explain it away. They said the Boers didn't fight fairly. They lay in the ground um, and took pot shots at the British as they went marching by. I mean, this is an exaggeration, obviously, but there was a tendency always to explain away um, uncomfortable evidence. The Russo-Japanese War, which was studied very, very closely, um, showed the very high cost of attacking well-defended positions, but the Japanese nevertheless overwhelmed the Russian positions. And so the conclusion that many European observers drew was that what you have to do is motivate your soldiers better and instill in them a willingness to take the sorts of sacrifices you need to win. And so the European, Europeans went into a war in 1914 I think still largely um, by accident and as a result of, of a few very bad decisions at the last moment, with this very ambivalent attitude towards the place of war in society. And they found themselves, of course, in a war that became a stalemate, that drew on the resources of societies in ways which I think few of them had imagined um, would be necessary or would be possible, and a war which in the end was going to change the face of Europe enormously. And, of course, the tragedy, among the many tragedies of the First World War, was that it didn't seem to have settled anything so that there wouldn't be another war. Um, Twenty years later, there was a second war, which some people have taken to calling Europe's Thirty Years' War, um, that the at least opening stages of the Second World War were a settling of things that hadn't been settled in the First World War. And so we look back at the First World War, I think, with horror, often with incomprehension, and with a feeling that it was inordinately wasteful, that it destroyed a prosperous and progressive Europe, it cut off 
avenues which Europe might have gone down, and in the end it didn't settle anything but left us a world uh, which, in which we're still working out many of the problems that were posed by that war. Thank you.